Hello and welcome to Talking Finance. I'm Alan Kohler. Well, this week on the show, Catherine Murphy is my favourite political journalist. She's political editor for The Guardian and she's going to take me through the week in politics and in particular, what's going on with Barnaby Joyce and what impact he's having on the National Party. As for the national counts this week and the news that GDP went up by 1% in the first quarter, 3.1% for the year, we're going to check in with Michael Blythe, Chief Economist for the Commonwealth Bank, to take us through what he found. Julia Lee, Equities Analyst at Bell Direct, tells me about what's going on in the markets. And Peter Drysdale, Emeritus Professor of Economics at Australian National University and an expert on Asia, talks us through the China trade war problems with the US and what it might mean for Australia. Members on my right will cease interjecting. The Leader of the House will cease interjecting. As usual lately, it's a big week in politics and to talk about it, we've got Catherine Murphy, political editor of The Guardian. Catherine, perhaps you can advise me. I, I can't figure out whether... The Barnaby Joyce saga is completely trivial or significant. Uh, which is it? <laughs> well, well, like a lot of things in politics, it's both. It's sort of uh, it's it's sort it's the the minutiae is kind of uh, well, uh, sort of you, you get repelled by the by the this sort of playing of someone's personal history over and over and over. Uh, but it is important in the sense that obviously this sequence of events uh, has cost Barnaby Joyce the leadership of the National Party, the Deputy Prime Ministership. It's isolated him within the National Party uh, and he's like an unguided missile from the point of view of the government. Uh, he's he's uh, He mentioned in his... Uh, much hyped Sunday night interview on the Seven Network that uh, part of the reason he had sort of batted on, tried to hold his position even though he himself knew it was untenable, was out of spite, <laughs> which was a fairly extraordinary admission for a politician to make. And so there's been a move on uh, over over the last, well, basically since this this sort of scandal about his private life exploded in the public domain. There's been a move on internally within the nationals to try and get him to move along, to move out of politics uh, because his position, at least from the vantage point of many colleagues, is now viewed as untenable. But the, the more obvious that sort of hip and shoulder charge becomes, the more he digs in and defends his position and that creates day after day of these negative news cycles for the government. Now, it's significant for another reason also, not only the end of a particular individual's sort of career in leadership of his political party, it is also, I think, impacting the political fortunes of the government. If you have a look at the Guardian Essential poll that we published at the start of this week, uh, it shows that the coalition's primary vote dropped by four points, which is outside the polls' margin of error. Therefore, something actually happened there. And that coincided, obviously, with uh, another round of controversy about Joyce's private life being in the public domain. So as long as this saga continues, it's going to deadweight the government. So it's really, it is sort of quite tricky. And, you know, it's a long-winded way of saying it is both trivial and significant. Do you, do you think if he retains pre-selection for New England, 
the government might lose it? It's possible. I, I am from that part of the world and also uh, went up uh, during the by-election uh, last year. And he has a sort of, uh, there's a lot of emotional attachment to Barnaby Joyce in that part of the world. There's, uh, but a lot of that emotional attachment is sort of tied up with two things. It was tied up with his status in the government, that he was the Deputy Prime Minister, and also about his style as a politician, that he speaks the, the language of his constituents and that a lot of constituents in that part of the world related to it. Um, the sort of the, the the talk about his private life was uh, was well, the talk is invisible, Alan, but you know what I mean. It was it was audible in the in the electorate during the by election period. No one knew precisely what was going on, but they knew that there had been a great eruption in his private life. So it was kind of known at the time of the by election, and yet he was re-elected with a swing to him. I imagine though that the iterations since have been damaging, even even though he has a strong bedrock of support up there. He has a lot of supporters, but I think that there would be a lot of people in the New England area who would be concerned by his behaviour, how he's conducted that possibly, himself. Um, possibly depends on who's, who stood against him, I guess. I mean, Tony, well, Windsor, Tony Windsor won that seat um, as an independent, and um, I wonder whether he'd stand again. Well, it's possible. I've, we've spoken to him this week. He's certainly not ruling it out. I think the difficulty for Windsor is that uh, there's a lot of there's sort of been a blood feud between himself and Joyce in that electorate over a couple of election cycles now, and I think uh, a lot of a lot of people around Tamworth are kind of weary with that blood feud. The other disadvantage Tony Windsor has, despite delivering an enormous amount for that electorate particularly during the 43rd Parliament, is that he did a deal with Labor. Uh, there's a lot of country people who won't forgive him because he uh, gave his support to a minority Labor, Labor government. I know that sounds a bit sort of black and white, but a lot of people do feel that way. So I don't know whether Windsor would try and mount a comeback. That seat's certainly ripe for a high-profile independent there's also quite a lot of talk about uh, the two of the guys that are in the adjacent state seats possibly making a transfer over to the federal scene. And Joyce may make way, of course, in amicable fashion for a successor, but there's no sign of that at the moment. Now, you did a piece um, uh, recently, just today or yesterday, um, uh, looking at the Australian Institute, interesting Australian Institute research, um, where they've looked at the um, distribution of the tax cuts over seats. Mm -hmm. And surprise, surprise, uh, the big winner <laughs> is Wentworth, the Prime Minister's yeah. seat. Which, yeah, cool. uh, there, there you go. So the question, <laughs> I suppose that the question then is um, whether this question of distribution, wealth distribution, uh, both for the personal tax cuts and obviously the, um, the company tax cuts, is going to bite at some point. Well, well, I think there there is now quite an interesting discussion um, about the, geo the geographical distribution of the full tax cut package and also the gender implications of it, courtesy of some more granular data that's been put in the public domain over the last week or so. Uh, I think if we sort of step back from the nitty-gritty of the tax package for one second, look at what's going on in the political discussion here, 
what Labor and others or opponents of the government have attempted to do every budget cycle over the life of this government, both Tony Abbott and Malcolm Turnbull, is to fight the budget, uh, the initiatives, the main initiatives on the budget and portray the budget initiatives, in this case the tax package, as unfair, as intrinsically unfair. Uh, I think Labor and the government's opponents have won every cycle of that battle since Tony Abbott was elected. They've won the fairness fight every single budget season. The government has failed to convince the voters that uh, that its budget is fair. Now, we're seeing another iteration of this now over the tax package. Uh, will it bite? Uh, well, I think certainly the the, the tax cuts uh, for higher income earners, which is where the distributional effect bites in terms of where Malcolm Turnbull's constituents get a big chunk of the pie because obviously reflecting a number of high income earners uh, obviously reside in his seat. I think it is from Labor's perspective campaignable that certainly the latter stage of of the tax cut plan which is the abolition of the 37% uh, tax bracket because on every piece of data from every uh, from everyone uh, the parliamentary budget office treasury are uh, interest groups like the Australia Institute, NATSEM, all of the major modelling exercises that we've seen in the wake of the budget do indicate without any, beyond any shadow of a doubt, that uh, wealthy people benefit disproportionately from that tax cut plan. We shouldn't forget, of course, that the first phase of of what the government has put on the table is for low and middle income earners. And it's interesting to see if we go back to gender for a second and that distributional debate, that uh, the opening phase of the tax cut uh, plan, which is for low and middle income earners, benefits the genders more or less equally, reflecting, you know, sort of income patterns and work patterns in in that level of income. So, look, everyone wants a tax cut, Alan. It's sort of one of those funny things. As a political journalist, I don't know how many opinion polls I've seen where people say, oh, we want to fund services, never mind the tax cuts. However, the lived experience of governments giving tax cuts indicate that more often than not, those governments get elected or get re-elected. The question is whether the higher income uh, tax cuts survive. Um, I suspect it's going to be very difficult. And one of the most difficult arguments Scott Morrison's got in order to land the higher end stuff on the one hand, he's saying to the uh, to uh, players in the parliament, crossbenchers, Labor and others, uh, look, we can't uh, accurately forecast figures 10 years out in relation to these tax measures because estimates about what economic growth, wages growth, all those other things, are, they're unreliable over a 10-year cycle. Now, that's true. What he says is absolutely true. But yet in the same breath, he is asking the parliament to lock in behind tax cuts that basically roll out for a decade. They're baked in, they're legislated, they roll out for an entire decade, regardless of the prevailing economic conditions. So that's, you can, from from Labor's perspective, you can fight this on two fronts. You can, you can fight against the lock-in mechanism and you can also fight on the fairness and distribution Mechanism, But anyway, uh, Scott Morrison's digging in for a fight. He's hoping the Senate will blink and pass a lot. A 
I'm joined now by Michael Blythe, Chief Economist for the Commonwealth Bank, to talk about this week's national accounts. Michael, um, did you learn anything in yesterday's national accounts that you didn't already know or that we didn't already know? Well, I, I think we all suspected the, uh, the Australian economy was travelling uh, pretty well at the start of uh, 2018, but uh, I think it's fair to say the bottom line outcome was uh, a bit better than uh, expected. Uh, uh, clearly, there's been a kind of a negative tone to news from offshore and uh, uh, some of it domestically as well. Uh, that was kind of colouring perceptions, but it was nice to get some confirmation uh, that there is a solid economic momentum there at the moment. And it's all about uh, net exports and public investment, isn't it? Yes, uh, I mean, I think the good news there is these are kind of long-running features of the, the growth story. So that infrastructure story will be playing out over the next couple of years, and uh, it's in a sense a guaranteed contribution to growth. Uh, typically, you start digging one of these tunnels, you don't stop until you get to the, the other end. And uh, uh, likewise, what we're finally seeing in the, uh, the net export numbers, the resource export story really firing up as all those uh, new LNG plants uh, come online. Well, given that um, fact, as you just pointed out, public investment is more or less locked in for years and, and, and the net exports number is to a large extent about the uh, LNG plants that uh, have been built, there they are, and they're going to start producing. It, would you say that it's pretty much impossible, therefore, for, the, for there to be a recession um, over the next few years? Well, I think while parts of the growth story are kind of locked in or guaranteed by the nature of what is uh, going on, you know, there are some big issues still playing out on the on the downside as well. So you know, we're coming off what's been the biggest residential construction boom we've ever had, uh, and that's a potential drag on the economy that builds uh, from from here. And uh, the biggest issue really, though, I think, is that uh, combination of very high levels of household debt uh, at a time of very weak income uh, growth, and uh, that's a fairly toxic mix when you're thinking about the consumer uh, part of the story. And that's what we did see as well in those numbers uh, for the first quarter GDP. In fact, we saw that um, consumption is largely being held up uh, despite low wages, low income, um, by um, the reduction in the savings rate. And I suppose you wonder how long that can go on for. Yes, well, certainly the savings rate is starting to get to uh, pretty low levels. A lot of that uh, boost that we saw after the uh, GFC has now been uh, unwound. And so there's a limit, I think, to how much further we can go there. So certainly from here, our consumer spending is going to tend, depend a lot more on income growth and what sort of numbers we get there, uh, rather than this uh, being funded, if you like, by uh, cutting our, our savings, because we've got to use that one up. So what's the next thing to look for, Michael, and, and what do you expect to see in it? Well, uh, I think the, uh, the things we really need to see uh, confirmed uh, is, is this lift in non-mining capex that uh, appears to be underway now. Is that, uh, you know, the turn that we've all been waiting for a number of years now? Is that a sustainable increase uh, coming through? Uh, and uh, we need to, uh, I think, uh, continue seeing the benefits from the uh, growth in incomes in the Asian region flowing, uh, flowing through. So it has been driving booms in the tourism and education uh, in, the, in the Australian economy. Uh, we kind of need to see that part of the story continue as uh, as well. But ultimately, though, what we're really looking for is a uh, turn in the wages story. You know, if wages growth picks up, then you can be more confident about the consumer side and uh, uh, some of the risks in that consumer story start to uh, recede uh, at, that, um, at that stage. Also, it makes you a bit more confident uh, that uh, inflation probably will move a little bit higher. Uh, and uh, you know, clearly, that's something the Reserve Bank has been uh, looking for for quite a while now. And just finally, when do you think the first change to interest rates will be, and I presume you think it'll be up? 
Yes, well, the Reserve Bank itself is saying uh, the next move is almost certainly up, so we'll, we'll agree with the direction. Uh, and in our own forecasts, uh, we have that first uh, rate rise pencilled in uh, for uh, February uh, 2019. So the rest of this year, nothing, uh, nothing happening. And you know, certainly the uh, Reserve Bank uh, continues to emphasise words like patient uh, when they're talking about the uh, the policy uh, policy outlook. Uh, so I think you need confirmation really that that wage and price story has uh, turned in a sustainable you know, fashion. The rest of the economy is looking increasingly normal. GDP growth running above uh, trend. Uh, uh, the unemployment rate slowly moving towards the uh, the five percent full employment figure for um, uh, for example. If you've got a kind of a normal economic backdrop, then the uh, the case for more normal looking interest rates is there as well at that point. So February next year makes you one of the earliest in the market, isn't it? Doesn't it? Uh, yep, certainly the uh, the market itself is not pricing much until you get into the second half uh, of um, uh, 2019. Uh, the uh, consensus amongst economists uh, is a little bit earlier than that, Q2. Uh, so uh, we sitting in Q1 are a little he- a little bit ahead of uh, of that. Uh, but uh, you know, if we keep generating the sort of uh, GDP type numbers that we saw uh, in the first uh, the first quarter, uh, then uh, I think it makes you pretty confident that uh, unemployment will keep moving lower, and uh, uh, you'll see some of that start to flow through to the wage and price story as well. I'm joined now by Julia Lee, Equities Analyst at Bell Direct, to talk about this week on the markets. Well, Julia, there's so much negativity around. There's all this stuff with the banks, ANZ getting charged criminal t- uh, things, CBA getting fined $700 million, the trade wars, the um, uh, all stuff in Europe. So, But the market seems to be powering along, you know, three rises out of four days this week. What's uh, What's behind it? I think a lot of uh, what we hear around Italy and trade wars is noise for the market. And the key for the market is that earnings growth still looks relative strong. And global growth, while there is the threat of a trade war which might derail growth, is still looking relatively strong at the moment. So if we have a look at the market this week, despite all the noise we've been marching forward, in fact, the Australian share market less than 100 points away from a post-global financial crisis high. And over in the US, tech stocks have been absolutely booming. This week we saw an all-time record high for Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Netflix, and indeed for the NASDAQ, which is a technology-based index. So here in Australia, things not looking too bad. And given that the market has been marching high, it's unsurprising that we have seen some of the Australian stocks that we love reaching all-time record highs as well. And this week, stocks like ResMed, CSL in the healthcare sector have hit all-time record highs. As you'd expect, the internet um, technology sector has been a highlight in stocks like Zero and Altium. Afterpay have seen a record high. Um, and we've also seen stocks like Lavisa in the retail sector, as well as Sandfire in the resources space, hitting an all-time record high. So, so to what extent do you think that the, the, um, the driver of the market around the world, the global market at the moment, is the FANG stocks in the US, those ones you mentioned? Well, at this point in the economic cycle, and I guess this is a point in the cycle which tends to be good for equities and bad for bonds, and that's the point in the cycle where you're seeing rising growth and rising inflation. We're calling this late cycle because uh, the next inflection point is not so good for equities, and that's where you're seeing slowing growth but still rising inflation. But we're still in that box where things are pretty good for equities. And when you come to the late point in the cycle, what tends to perform well are growth 
type of stocks and growth companies. In fact, we've been at this point in the cycle many times before in history. And if we go back in time, we can have a look at the different sectors that have performed best at this point in the cycle. And that's areas like energy, the material sector, which include the resource companies, as well as healthcare. And if I just have a look at how some of those sectors have performed uh, year to date, if we have a look at the energy sector, that's been driven by higher oil prices. And if we have a look at oil prices, they're up 8% in the year to date. The healthcare sector here in Australia is up 23% just in 2018 so far. So certainly some of those late cycle growth stories are doing quite well. Can you be a bit precise for us about where we are in the cycle? I mean, you talk about it being late, but how late do you think it is? Well, that's the fascinating thing about markets, Alan. Um, you can be 100% correct and still lose money, and that's because the timing of these things are difficult. And there's, a, I guess, a big argument going on in financial markets at the moment on how late we are in the cycle and how much longer we have to go. My personal opinion is that we're still 18 months away from a possible inflection point from from rising growth into the slowing growth part. But that part is what's causing the volatility in markets this year and the nervousness around things like trade wars, Italy perhaps leaving the Eurozone. So I think in 2018, we are going to see a lot more volatility for markets. That's because of nervousness and the market trying to predict when the next stage of the cycle might occur. But the truth is nobody knows. And one of the things I'm watching very closely is the US. It's unprecedented that at a time of rising growth, you also see this massive investment by the US government. And that's exactly what we're seeing. The US government is borrowing about $955 billion uh, this year, and that's around about double what it borrowed last year. So not only do you have this strong growth coming through, but then you have the US government, one of the biggest spenders in the global economy, also putting money back into the economy as well. So I think the the worry might be that growth starts to run away, that we get runaway inflation, and then the central bank over in the US clamps down on that growth quite aggressively, and we see a strong policy response. And I think that's a, a major risk for the markets. It's no sign of it yet, though, is there? No sign of it yet. <laughs> Things are still looking pretty good, as you can see from um, some of the market indices around the globe reaching all-time record highs. And despite you know some of the doom and gloom out there and the talk of trade wars, if you have a look at the market's performance, you know, the Australian market has been doing quite well. May and June tend to be very weak uh, months for the market. In fact, they tend to be some of the worst months for the market. If you go back to 2000 and crunch the numbers, May is the worst month. But, you know, we saw a positive performance in May. We're seeing a positive performance in June and April was a positive month as well. So we're looking down the face of three consecutive months of positive growth for the Aussie share market. I'm joined now by Peter Drysdale to talk about China trade wars and what's going on there. He's with the Crawford School of Public Policy at the Australian National University and an expert on Asian economies. Well, Peter, um, apparently Wilbur Ross, the Commerce Secretary of the United States, came back from talks in uh, Beijing last last weekend empty-handed. Nothing happened and now they're back. The trade war appears to be back on. Um, what, what impact do you think this all is likely to have on Australia? Uh, yeah, well, I don't think it ever was quite sorted out, Alan. So it's, uh, I think there's still basically a process of negotiation going on. I, I guess uh, there were some exchanges in in 
in Beijing, but they didn't seem to satisfy either side. Uh, and the more it goes on, the more it's difficult to see uh, a happy resolution to this. Uh, there aren't many happy resolutions anyway, because you know, these are the two biggest uh, trading nations in the world, uh, having uh, really quite a uh, whatever you think about the motivations uh, of Trump's initiative on uh, Super 301 and the 232 tariff initiatives, uh, uh, this is going to lead to a, a settlement that uh, either uh, sparks a larger trade war, best case outcome, some kind of agreement between China and the United States, which... Uh, means more managed trade and damage to the world trading system. I suppose uh, the optimism is fading now for a, a benign outcome in which uh, the push from Washington is used to initiate a wider range of trade and other reforms in China, uh, which move ahead quickly enough to satisfy the politics in Washington. Yeah, well, I mean, the um, I suppose the, the point partly is that uh, China, I mean, that China does have uh, issues to answer. I mean, the way that it does uh, require technology transfer, it doesn't, hasn't really opened up its markets. So, I mean, there are a bunch of things that um, uh, we can reasonably ask of China, but um, uh, they seem to be reluctant. Well, I think uh, uh, the reasonable ask is there. There's no question about that, and that's open uh, to negotiation. But what we're on, involved in here is something well beyond that, which is... Uh, an initiative which works outside the established rules-based trading system, which will have the effect of bringing that system down rather rapidly. Uh, and that's a pretty high price to pay for negotiating a different arrangement for technology transfer, if that is clearly what the issue is, uh, on the uh, entry of uh, foreign investment and other technology players into the Chinese market. So that's what's at stake here. It's it's not uh, uh, it's not a a trivial thing. Uh, as I said, uh, almost any outcome from this negotiation you like to think about is going to do serious damage to the trading system. So we've got a circumstance uh, uh, in the world trading system now where it's uh, everybody else uh, against the uh, United States, no matter what problems there still remain in China's approach to trade and commercial policy. Uh, that's why everybody is so worried about this. It's uh, a direct, uh, a corro there'll be a direct corrosion uh, of the international rules-based trading regime if uh, uh, either of the most likely outcomes from this negotiation occur. Well, I guess it can't be regarded as a surprise in that this is basically the main thing Trump talked about before he was elected and um, uh, arguably has a full mandate to go ahead with what he's doing. Yeah, well, it's a, a complicated issue, the politics of that. Of course, uh, the optimists always believe that, uh, like other presidents in the past, did back away and see reason from the viewpoint of what the impact of this will be not only uh, on the global trading system but also uh, on the US economy. I mean, there aren't many optimistic uh, estimates uh, in whatever scenario you build of uh, what the impact of this will be on the global economy. Uh, you know, here in Australia, we did some 
uh, scenario, building on this earlier on through the Productivity Commission, looking at the costs of trade war uh, on Australia, but also on other countries, including the United States. Uh, and if you go down this path uh, anyway very far, uh, none of it's very pretty. Uh, there's no question that it costs uh, income and jobs in the United States. Uh, if Donald Trump promised, uh, well, he did what he promised in the election campaign, uh, it would pair uh, a percentage point of precious GDP growth in the states that would cost uh, uh, 100,000 jobs on one scenario, 400,000 on an American scenario I read recently uh, a year. So uh, this uh, is a destabilizing element in the global economy. And, uh, and despite uh, the other elements of Trump policy, uh, expansion, uh, budgetary expansion, and, uh, uh, and uh, <clears throat> the bullishness associated with that, uh, uh, you'll have noticed that uh, there's a great deal of uncertainty in the market about uh, what the outcome of this might be and every time it hits a bump uh, of course the market takes a hit uh, and that's for good reason because uh, uh, the, the effects will be longer to, 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 to come in but they, they will be serious and real in their impact on, on uh, US uh, growth prospects in the medium term. So what about Australia, though? Well, I mean, yesterday or this week we saw GDP numbers, um, which were largely all about net exports, or at least mm. that was a, that was a big factor in the in the growth numbers we're seeing. So, uh, and obviously net exports to China, which are going really well at the moment. So, what what impact do you think it's uh, likely to have on Australia? Yeah, well, uh, uh, that's always the immediate interest, of course. Uh, the bigger interest, as I've said, is in what happens to the whole system. But, uh, you know, the immediate effects of, say, a settlement with the U.S., uh, which saw a significant expansion of energy and agricultural exports from the U.S. into China, would da damage our export prospects in that market. Uh, of course, uh, as uh, some of the... Uh, more perspicacious American negotiators noticed that to be a lot of a shift away from uh, U.S. markets to other places and into China if uh, uh, that was to have any immediate effect. And, of course, uh, you know, that comes out on the Washington global markets. But uh, in the longer term, as supply began to, began to respond to uh, more access, uh, for special access for U.S. exports to the Chinese market, uh, then that would certainly damage Australia's uh, export prospects in the longer term. Uh, those effects uh, in the medium to longer term uh, are overwhelmed, of course, uh, by the effects of uh, uh, the uh, uh, whatever the trade war does or the trade settlement does out of the uh, scuffle, uh, whatever that does to uh, the global trading system in the terms of in terms of the retreat. Uh, from the rules-based system and uh, basically roughly equal access for everybody into other people's markets, which is what that but, system guarantees. But it sounds like a it sounds like a lose-lose for Australia if um, if the trade war happens, we lose, and if they come to a deal that increases exports from the US to China, we also lose. Yeah, well, uh, uh, yeah, that the second is the sort of best case, <laughs> the worst case outcomes, as it were. 
but uh, there's no question that it'll have a, an impact on, on some of our markets. Of course, there are a range of markets in which uh, we don't compete uh, with the United States uh, in China, uh, but there are a range in which we do. I mean, quite prominently, of course, uh, you know, beef will be directly affected as soon as an uptake, a significant uptake of U.S. beef into the Chinese market. Uh, that was to be expected in some way anyway as soon as that uh, distortion in the, in the trade was eliminated. And wine and a range of things like that, uh, including uh, some grain products. But uh, by far and away, uh, the major markets... Uh, some of the major markets uh, of the U.S. in China on the agricultural side, like soybeans and so on, we're not, we're not a com- competitive supplier in, but uh, there are important and very rapidly growing markets in which we are, and there's no question that even the best-case outcome, some kind of agreement uh, which uh, uh, gives special uh, access uh, to U.S. suppliers of agricultural and energy commodities to the Chinese market will, will damage Australian interests. Uh, so what do we do in response to that? That's the question, I suppose. Happy birthday to Boz Skaggs, who turned 74 today, and his big hit was Georgia, and it paid for his Napa Valley vineyard, where he now lives in retirement. Good on you, Boz. Georgia's a great song. Georgia, I swear I've never seen such a smile. That's it for Talking Finance. I'm Alan Kohler. Have a great week.